Hello everyone and welcome to episode 60 of Link to the Cast, your weekly dose of video games and nerd culture ephemera. On the show this week, Mark actually saw a film while it was still current, Dave test-fired some Splatoon, sorta, Call of Duty is going in the Wayback Machine to help recapture the magic, and in our book club this week, we're gonna get all puzzly one more time as we talk World of Goo. Let's do this. episode 60 our diamond anniversary uh i am your party host dave ryan joined as i am every week by the platforming prodigy mark robinson mark how are you well i'm halfway out the door of the eu now so you know i'm feeling great yeah well um, no you, you moved back into the eu you pre it was a preemptive strike moving to ireland so you're still in the eu sure yeah i'd maybe talk to the embassy and see about that citizenship because i'm pretty sure at this point we're common law married so well, <laughs> probably no. I I tweeted residency. I tweeted early today that I was going to pop up to the embassy, and you know the the shrug emoji. Yeah, it's just going to be that for an yeah. hour. Just speak long enough for them to hear your accent, and they'll go. We understand. Yeah. We have a special queue over here. <laughs> <laughs> um, other than that, I'm fine. I'm uh, I'm okay. How are you? I'm pretty good. The weather is starting to improve. Yes, finally. it is. Um, this is the fir- I, this is the first uh, link to the cast by natural light we've done in what feels like about six months. It feels it, it does bring a. Different... We, now we normally record at night, so that doesn't yeah. help matters. But... It, it does bring a different light, and I don't mean that pun intended, but uh, it does bring a different kind of light. I feel a little bit more upbeat, a little bit more perky, a yeah. little bit more optimistic about. That could just... be just the ice cream you've just could had. be could just be the ice burger. an ice burger, oh, like an absolute savage. They're really I'll good. One, I'll be having one after the. Have podcast. you ever had the the Oreo kind of variant of an ice burger? Um, I have had, uh, what are they called? Um, I, I know what you're talking about. I haven't had that specifically, but I've had, fuck, there's one, right? There's, the, there's one ice cream and I, I really need to, oh, it's like an ice cream sandwich. You get it in like Spain and Portugal and places like that. Okay. You can get the plain version here, which is kind of just like a chocolate chip vanilla ice cream inside a, um, um, like half ice cream sandwich, half chocolate. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Uh, sandwich. Yep. But the um the 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 version you can get on the continent, as they say, uh-huh. it, it's it's more like the Iberian Peninsula. I've I've the Emma, my girlfriend, told me about them first, and she's never found them anywhere apart from like Spain and Portugal, places around that sort of area. Um, the in the ones you get there, I'm God, I'm I'm kicking myself that I can't remember the name of these things now. But uh, they replaced the standard ice cream sandwich stuff with cookie dough, and Whoa. that. My Oof. friend is. I tell you who would probably know what that's called. That's the OSW lads. Oh, I actually, I was in. So you know, feast ice creams here. Yeah. Um, one of the the tropes on the OSW review, which you should check out if you like old school wrestling and video podcasts. They're a great bunch of lads. OSWreview.com. Check that shit out. Um, Irish as well. Um, one of the the tropes they have on there is noggers. They say greetings, noggers, at the start of every podcast. Well, that's their feast ice creams now in the UK and Ireland. That's what they're called. Sure. Probably because, you know, the, the phrase noggers rhymes with something that has, does not have great connotations. Um, 
so they probably moved well away from that. But uh, in Czech Republic, they're still called noggers. Yeah. Yeah, took a picture of one when I was there last time. Howled. No one else got it. Um, yeah, but it's been a good week. Mark, you actually saw a film. I did. Yeah, you went to see a film. Like, normally if you go to see a film in the cinema, it's like right as they're almost shoving the projection reels out the door because it's nearly out on DVD. I'm having to watch it in the back in the warehouse yeah, somewhere yeah, before they ship you're, it out. You're, you're not known as, like, I, I, I ironically call you, Cap, you and Brian, Captain Current. Hmm. Um, because both he kind of you're not as bad as Brian Brian sometimes it takes him like years of badgering him and breaking him down to watch something oh I don't know I came up to you the other day and said hey you seen this film Kingsman it took Brian 16 years to watch Futurama <laughs> well, alright <laughs> I mean, it will probably take me just as long with... Uh, I, Arrested Development. I, I, well, yeah. Well, I've watched that pilot episode about ten times, and I just never get past it's, it. it. This isn't the venue for that, Yeah, but sure. It just persist, my friend, All trust right. me. Because I, I have the time for that. Uh, yeah, no, I saw the new Beauty and the Beast, and... Um, not Bash at the Beach. Not Bash at the Beach. No, I did enjoy it, though. <laughs> um, one thing I came out of the film either not remembering or just not realising is how much I really enjoy the original and how much of the original I remembered because it's been at least, I want to say, 20 years since I saw the the 1991 original Disney classic. Um, Like, I remember seeing uh, Aladdin and uh, The Lion King a lot more frequently. Those are my two. They're, they're, yeah, they're, but they're, and Hercules. I love and Hercules. Hercules. But there's that period of the the early '90s into the mid '90s of just absolute bangers, one after the other. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, I could say you could probably. There's a documentary somewhere on Netflix about the the history of Disney Animation Studios, and I, about right before Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast, they were nearly close down yeah i think I, I think like the little mermaid was was either the turning point or um well, I, I think it must have been around that point because the little mermaid was i i think you can add that as like the beginning of the the next couple of films with that mm-hmm. and beauty and the beast where and obviously beauty and the beast is the one that um it was nominated for best film it didn't win it if i remember or did it win it i can't remember i don't want to say conclusively either way because i don't know for sure but i'll, I'll look it up when sure. you're talking about this film anyway so uh, Disney are in the process of remaking or making live adaptations of some of their classics. Uh, we've already seen a couple of these with the likes of The Jungle Book and uh, what's the other one that they've done uh, that my brain is failing on me? They did uh, Snow White and the Huntsman, Maleficent. Oh, I don't think I've oh, seen either of them. But anyway, Jungle Book was really good. Yeah. Um, that I can conclusively say. Did you see Jungle Book? Um, no, I have it on Blu-ray here, and I Ooh. keep meaning to watch okay. it. Okay, now that that film, like small, I think it actually is that stack of Blu-rays. There's a stack of Blu-rays somewhere I have put stuff aside that I have bought it and I need to watch. Now that film was excellent because um, the casting was was brilliant. Mm. Uh, Idris Elba as Shere Khan, um, Bill Murray as uh, Baloo, and uh, Christopher Walken as King Louis. Yeah. I t- tell you what, um, I-, I will sit down with you to watch that film again because I, I need to hear uh, King of the Swingers as, uh, sung by, well, I say sung, but as performed, <laughs> spoken. spoken by he, Chris He Walken. sung it like The Rock was singing in Moana. Sure. Well, kind of. I wouldn't even go that far. Well, I think The Rock was speaking and Autotune was doing the rest. Mm, maybe. Um, so this, I will say this, some some of the casting here for... Um, 
Beauty and the Beast is is very well done. Uh, the key thing here, the difference is that uh, we actually have more. Because you say Jungle Book is a live action film, but most of it is CGI outside uh, of the original. Just to uh, cut back in here, the original Beauty and the Beast from 1991 was nominated for four. No, sorry, five Academy Awards. Uh, and won two. It won for best music original score and best music original song. Okay, that uh, that sounds about right. The song that won was Beauty and the Beast. Beauty, uh, sure. Three songs from it were nominated: "Be Our Guest," "Beauty and the Beast," and "Bell." Strong. Um, so the Gaston should have been. Nominated. Yeah. The the added difficulty here is that, and this is going to be for all the live adaptations they do, is they need to get people that physically can represent the the originals um as well as tonally mm. or at least have an interesting take tonally which is what they did i thought like bill murray as blue was was uh, perfect casting and here luke evans as gaston is is like a one for one there is no scenery left on chew oh my god he chews it like there is no tomorrow yeah, and it's two, perfect the two characters you need to nail for a good adaptation of that are gaston and lumiere because they're the that they own the fucking screen every time they're on yeah it. and and ewan mcgregor does an excellent job as lumiere and uh luke uh so, yeah ewan mcgregor and luke evans does a really really good job of gaston like they those two are by far the most enjoyable uh, parts of the film and the mm. best performances uh, Ian McKellen as Cogsworth is a little bit disappointing. He's a little bit more kind of reined in from the original. And it has to be said that Emma Watson, I don't know whether to say that she was not cast, she was not the correct uh, casting for that role, or that she just wasn't fully into it or wasn't directed in the right, right way because everyone kind of ramps it up to 11, but she kind of besides besides cogsworth whereas she she kind of plays it too straight laced yeah. um, well like she's probably the least interesting character in the animated one as well um i wouldn't go that far i i out of like the three main characters of beast bell and um beast bell and my brain's just failing me gaston. Beast, and gaston yep sorry there we go uh, yeah, I guess you could make that that argument, but the the problems with Emma Watson here is that obviously she doesn't have the vocal range. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, back in the day with the the live, uh, sorry, the the cartoons and the, and the musicals, the, um, they just got the best voice actors. You yeah. know, didn't matter what they looked like, uh, for better or for worse, they got the best voice actors. Mm -hmm. And so here. Emma Watson, she's obviously a, a beautiful young lady, but she doesn't have the vocal range to pull off that role. Um, she's not bad by any means. She's not a bad singer, but she's not of that level that you'd expect with a Disney musical. And you can also hear the the, the auto tuning at points, uh, and that's kind of a big no no. Yeah. Um, she does come across as a little bit wooden at points as well. Yeah, this is the thing. Um, the the Emma Watson as a wooden actress is a thing that it very much is reminiscent of. It's it's a thing that's leveled against all three of the main kids from Harry Potter. Yeah. One time or another. I think Rupert Grint is the one who has um, not gotten that as much because he's pretty much gone straight into... He does like loads of weird indie stuff that he shows up in. Yeah. So he's getting the cred that way. But Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson certainly have been accused of... And watching back... Um, I was watching back some of the early Harry Potter films. Uh, not, oh, not it's very noticeable in the first one. Yeah, him. Him. Like, she is kind of... She's not as just grating as he is. Like, every line he delivers is 
wooden stiff but they, they get that they still get that to this day even though I do think Daniel Radcliffe is a very good actor now yeah uh, and I do think Emma Watson is what Emma Watson has is what I would like to dub Kira Knightley syndrome <laughs> is that there's a lot of people that think Kira Knightley is a terrible actress but what it is is Kira Knightley is very good at very certain things mm. um like you don't hire Kira Knightley for the kind of loud bombastic um roles like did you ever see that uh during one of mickey rourke's near comebacks she did that um that biopic of your one what's her name that was the she was like some sort of socialite who became a bounty hunter uh, domino harvey it was no, domino was the film and that. she was supposed to be this kind of eccentric um model turned uh bounty hunter and just didn't come off like but some of the things she's Kira Knightley is in like atonement and things like that with more kind of subtlety and kind of the, that kind of period drama yeah, is like, great for her she's very much of that ilk and that yeah. works for her yeah and like I'm sure it's the same could be said with Emma Watson like she has her niche and maybe this was just a bit too far outside the comfort zone for for um, See, I thought that this might have been up her alley as this kind of fantastical, romantic piece. I, I thought that yeah. she might have been able to fit into the role, but even from the trailers, it just seemed uh, she seems a bit out of place here. Yeah, do you know? Do you know what I mean? Actually, great for it because you talk about someone who has pipes, who probably like fits the Disney princess mold and is fucking awesome in everything she's in. Is Anna Kendrick? Uh, yeah, sure. Because like she is a fucking incredible singer um i think and i and this is not coming from me but i i think that she would not fit the uh, kind of physical mold of what they're looking for in a disney princess and i i don't uh, yeah, agree I'm with like, that yeah, yeah. you know but um i could see that being um a reasoning behind it now i will say this uh like if you do a kind of scene by scene contrast mm-hmm. or comparison like uh visually it's it's absolutely spot on it's a really good film to just enjoy it and watch from the set pieces um like the way the castle looks uh the the cgi on uh lumiere and cogsworth and like the be our guests scene is is really really well done um and for that reason alone i think it's definitely worth seeing um the the costumes and the way the the, the actors and actresses are dressed up like I think that is all spot on and I think that like overall I came out of the film I did enjoy it um I think that the uh the presentation of um uh Luffy is it Luffy I can never remember how to pronounce his name correctly uh Luffy, Luffy? let me uh Lefou uh, Lefou Oh, LeFou. LeFou, sorry. Um, his kind of uh, representation as a gay character in this yeah. is a little bit too on the nose. Yeah. Um, like, I see where they were coming from. And when you think about it, it's like, well, of course, that makes sense from the way that he is in the cartoon. You know, this yeah. just kind of sheer admiration uh, for Gaston. It mm. makes sense. But they do play it a little bit too on the nose, and if I was uh, if I was uh, gay, I would probably come across. It, come is a- it, does it come across a bit panto, like a little like bit too kind of overplayed? Yeah, yeah, no nuance to it. Y- no, it's like the, the subtlety hammer is you are bashed with it. Yeah. You know, I suppose that's the problem with being peripheral to Gaston is that there's no subtlety around Gaston at all. So no, it'd be weird to have Gaston being so body and 
out of his box mad and then like a real understated sidekick yeah, so, I suppose that's kind of difficult from a narrative yeah, standpoint yeah, yeah. so like if I was gay I might have come out of that feeling a little bit offended but for the direction they've gone um, the way LeFou is played by Josh Gad yeah. he plays it as it is intended for that role that he's been given and so that's a really enjoyable performance uh, so overall, they add like a couple of extra bits and pieces to some of the songs. There's a couple of new scenes, a couple of new songs. They don't hit a 10 for me, um, but I came out of it. I did enjoy it. Um, I would, yeah, I'd say go and see it. Um, certainly if you like the original, like you won't come out of it thinking, oh, they've desecrated the original. I don't think that at all. Uh, two recommendations I want to make for this week uh, for people to check out. Uh, I watched a thing called National Treasure last week, not the Nicolas Cage film about <laughs> treasure hunting. This dollar bill is trying to say, tr- was it trying to say something to me. I have never seen that film. Uh, it's, I'm sure it's ooh, awful. And the sequel. Ooh. I have also never seen the sequel. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, this was a four-part drama on Channel Four last year uh, with Robbie Coltrane in it, um, and it's about. Uh, a popular comedian from decades past who gets um, embroiled, shall we say, in a um, in in a, uh, a rather torrid scandal of possible rape and abuse. Oh, okay. Very, it gets very tree shall we say? Right. Like, there's a great line, uh, Robbie Coltrane. Uh, utters he's sitting in the, I think he's sitting in the back of a taxi in the first episode uh, when the press are really starting to pillory him when this stuff starts to come out that the police are investigating and he's just going they're trying to turn me into Jimmy fucking Savile um, <laughs> and like it's a real like it's real um, as you would expect for this kind of subject matter it's it's played very very seriously it's an incredible like the, the four hours of it because it's four one hour shows they all breeze by. Um, it's an excellent narrative that goes in a lot of different weird directions that I wasn't expecting. Like when you start to get um, when you start to get a bit deeper on his his relationship with his wife and his relationship with his former comedy partner uh, and their daughter, who is uh, has an unspecified mental illness. Um, things start to get really weird and uh, unusual and I, I what i really like about the show is that it keeps you in a state of doubt pretty much the entire way through as to did he actually do this or is this a kind of um because you know that they're, they're like as many horrible stories as there is there's also like a culture in kind of tabloid culture of people selling stories that may not necessarily be true mm-hmm. um so you're kind of there's a lot of things a lot of subtle things that Robbie Coltrane does and says and and things because you follow him for most of the show where you could read into it okay he definitely did it or no he he can't have done it you know because even in private moments it's not like he's uh, sitting there like robert durst in the jinx just going yeah i did it uh you really don't know uh pretty much the whole way through even though the show follows him it's very very cleverly done so i would definitely recommend that if you're looking for some sort of short form drama to check out the other thing i want to i want to peep on this show is uh, i don't know if you heard of it this is the new podcast phenomenon that's sweeping the world is s town um Brought to you by the producers of This American Life and Serial. Okay. Uh, this American Life, which is the most popular podcast on the face of the earth. Um, 
and has been for God fucking knows how long. Not Bruce Pritchard something to wrestle with. No, no, funnily enough, no. The the Ira Glass documentary series that kind of they're they're little short form audio documentaries that kind of what I always describe them as is finding fascination in the mundanity of life because they will find somebody in a kind of line of work or a or a way of life that you would think how could this possibly be interesting in any way and then within an half hour or an hour you're just super into this fascinating look at this person's life like it could be a guy who just uh i remember listening to one i don't know if it was one of them or radio lab it was definitely a short form audio documentary i listened to about rival ice cream van owners that you would think that sounds like the dullest thing in the world was fucking fascinating uh, and then serial which completely blew up a couple of years ago yeah. um the the unsolved murder uh well the maybe unsolved murder of a young girl Heyman Lee and the imprisonment of her ex-boyfriend under the assumption that he did it without any necessarily hard evidence and whether um a botched defense is what cost him his freedom as opposed to him actually doing it or not um so the those two and and that was a this american life production but the 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 crew that work on serial and the crew that work on this american life got together and they made this thing called s-town all seven parts of it dropped yesterday so this was a new kind of like almost trying the netflix model for a podcast which is an interesting way to do it they dropped all seven hours of it yesterday i listened to it pretty much all through yesterday when i was doing my my errands and stuff around town uh gotten towards the end of it now and it's 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 really it's incredible like it starts off with the premise that there's this journalist that works for npr that gets a it gets repeated emails from a guy in alabama saying that there's wanton police abuse happening in here and there had been some news stories about like there was a sheriff or an assistant sheriff who had been um forcing sexual favors to get out get people out of parking tickets and things like that um and there had been rumors of widespread corruption down in this place it's bibb county in alabama so this guy is emailing them saying there's a guy in town who has some uh shall we say some uh links to not only the sheriff's department but various white supremacy groups alabama big shocker mm-hmm. um that killed a guy and the police covered it up and everyone in the community knows about it, but everyone's afraid to say it. So the journalist comes down to investigate this. And he comes down to investigate it. I'm not going to, like, guiltily say where it goes. But that's just the starting point. It goes in fucking so far away from that. The, like, the the murder or alleged murder is only really the hook that gets the journalist into this. But what actually ends up happening is that the seven parts are more dedicated to this guy who emailed him, John's his name, um, who he goes down to, who's this mad eccentric character who's an orologist, uh, or horologist down in uh, Alabama fixing clocks and uh, just this incredible, um, capricious and eccentric mind who just fascinates this journalist and it's more about that guy's life and his interactions and things that happened to him and happened to him uh, and the people around him that this documentary is about it's not really about that murder at all or alleged murder um it's unbelievable and it is kind of more this american life than serial so it's not about the scandal or a crime it's more about the the kind of the fascinating mundanity of someone's life or how someone who you might think had a really dull and uneventful life actually 
there's so many layers and there's strangeness and darkness and there's a kind of a good heart it, it's it's a really 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 good uh documentary series all seven parts are available now on whatever your podcast provider of preferences it's called s-town uh, so check that out uh, the final thing i want to plug before we start uh, talking about video games um it's wrestlemania week we're all is. we're all hyped for the graps my friend but yep. we're not going to be talking about the the graps on this podcast because we have done so quite a bit in this last week um Check out our podcast feed if you haven't downloaded already or go to linktothecast.eu because we have a two-part preview of WrestleMania 33 and all related uh, kind of independent shows and events that are happening around WrestleMania week for you to indulge in. And and who knows, we might even do, a, a, a if there's enough to talk about, we might do a post-WrestleMania podcast Maybe. As well. and, and thank you to everyone that's already listened because... Uh, Absolutely, yeah. The, the numbers have been good. It's popped some numbers. Yeah. So obviously people are liking that content. We've had some discussions about possibly doing kind of a period periodic uh wrestling podcast when uh, in the link to the cast feed when there's sufficient when the time is necessary yeah yeah it's not a real weekly thing no Um, (laughs) no no, the other thing i want to pimp because like i keep meaning to um mention it is that if you want to listen to more of me talking about the wrestling i've been on a wrestlingobserver.com the last couple of months on the dr keith presents show hosted by a good friend of ours alan 4l uh, talking the road to WrestleMania, uh, him, myself, and uh, the, the great man that is Justin Shapiro. Uh, now, it is, but I think one of the episodes is free. The rest of them are behind the paywall over at WrestlingObserver.com. But go over and check those shows out um, if you want to hear more of us talking about the graps. And if you do like it, go and give that money to the Big Dave Melts. Yes, give it to Big, Big Dave. What a lad. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. Playing this week. Hey, check it out. I learned the baseline from Final Fantasy 2. Scott, you are the salt of the earth. Well, thanks. I meant scum of the earth. Thanks. Gonna get mine out of the way uh, fairly quickly here, Mark. I've only been playing uh, <laughs> a couple of things this week. It's been mainly Zelda really? all the time. Is that so? Uh, yeah, I got... I'm hoping for next week I'll have cracked into... I got Yakuza 0. I found a GameStop voucher lying around the house and went and bought myself Yakuza 0 with it because there was one copy left in our local GameStop. Um, so hopefully I'll talk about Yakuza 0 next week. But uh, Zelda, it, Breath of the Wild, unless it falls off a cliff. is And that's not Link falling off a cliff no, many, no, many times. No, no, I, I, I fall off happened. so many cliffs in that game. <laughs> it's, not, it's not even funny. Um, unless that game falls off a major cliff uh, from here on out. I have already put in, by the way, I'm at about 45 hours in this game so far. And I am nowhere in terms of full completion. <laughs> that upsets me so much. I am at about 35 to 40 of the shrines uh, out of 120. I have maybe 50 of, or I think we're 900 Korok seeds, but they're not necessarily, like, unless you want 100%, 100%, you don't no. need to collect I, I have seeds. only ever 100%ed Ocarina of Time once with, like, yeah. everything that game is to do. Cor- I'm all, not doing all it Korok for seeds are for is adding inventory slots for weapons, but yeah. they, they max out at a certain point. I think you only need to collect about two to 300 to max out your inventory slots. Anyway, um... And then I have, there are these things, you'll see in the promotion material, there are these things called Divine Beasts, which are, uh, in the game, the, the lore is that they're old, um, these old kind of, I was saying to you yesterday, I don't want to call them robots, but that's essentially what they are, because there's no, like, wiring or mechanics in them, but they're like these ancient stone beasts that are piloted, that were guardians of Hyrule, 
back in the day, but Calamity Ganon has taken them over. So you have to, you don't have to, but to aid you in your battle against Ganon at the end, it, it's encouraged that you take, oh, you reclaim these beasts one by one by one. So I've only done one of them <laughs> out of four. And the one I've done looking it up last night, because I've been going guide free so far, looking it up, apparently the one I did is the easiest one. Huh. <laughs> um, so those beasts are the way they get the standard dungeons into Zelda. I say standard. So the beasts actually, when you go into them, are big fucking dungeons that you have to work your way through and at the end there's a boss so like the kind of the old zelda formula so they are the big dungeons and the shrines are more like bite-sized dungeon puzzles Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think that's a really cool model uh for doing it um but that game yeah like i said unless it falls off a cliff uh towards the very end um it is on it's going to be on par with witcher 3 for my game of the generation and is going to be rapidly going up my favorite games i've ever played um i can't even put into words how much i love that game and i'm a very verbose man my friend um the i'd really like my switch now i know the other thing uh i've been playing and i'm just gonna i don't really have a lot to say on this but just to kind of mention that it it's open i've been playing it um a little bit the uh test fire beta for splatoon 2 went live last weekend and i played a little bit of it um the servers were whoo, temperamental at best but that's what they're they haven't just opened it for a full weekend or anything to let people in what they're doing is they're doing targeted appointments to try and really stress test the servers yeah so everyone hops deliberately hops on at the same time and they tried to figure out the ways in which the servers are breaking i, I can kind of see why they've done that. it's a smart it, it doesn't like from the gamer's perspective it's very frustrating but from the from nintendo's perspective it makes absolute sense of course yeah um i think maybe the better way to do it would be like to appease everybody would be to have it open for the whole weekend but to have maybe like some sort of events going on at targeted times something some reason for people to definitely be on at a particular time uh but yeah it's it's more splatoon it's it looks prettier uh, the music is still absolutely banging mm-hmm. in, in Splatoon 2. Uh, I only really played with the, the new... There's the new Splat Duelies, which are the, the dual weapons in it. How how does the, the control scheme work? I turned off the motion control yep. straight away and it was fine. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, I was afraid that it was going to make me aim with the motion controls and I hate motion controls. Yeah. Um, I've turned off motion controls because you can aim with the motion controls in Breath of the Wild as well and that just annoys me. Yeah. So I, okay. I, I turned it off straight away. Control's fine, feels fine when it works, obviously. Um it's a bit chaotic having like 4v4 uh, i think it is maybe it's 5v5 definitely at least 4v4 um it's a bit chaotic the the, the map i played on looks really cool as well yeah it if it, it, what i got to feel from because i wasn't like i like splatoon but like you got really into splatoon yeah. for a while a lot of people did um the the vibe i can the, what i can happily report here before we move on is that um if you like splatoon you're probably going to be very happy when this comes out in June. Doesn't seem like the hottest of hot takes, but that's good. That's yeah, that's, indeed. that's good to hear. It's more Splatoon, and it's better in enough ways that people will be happy. Excellent. Uh, what have you been playing, my friend? Uh, I, I wanted to get Night in the Woods, but I ended up buying a, a keyboard case for my Samsung, So, and considering my... Uh, the money coming in isn't as much as I'd like at the moment. You know, I have to make tactical purchases. So, 
uh, a game stripping I'm stripping used to be a lucrative field. Yeah, man. I, I know. Right? Oh. It just it, my my body has let itself go, and it's just, <laughs> the money's not coming in. Uh, so I've been playing uh, Euclidean Lands, which is a uh, iOS game, and uh, I'll have a review out for that on Pocket Tactics at some point in the near future. It is a mixture of the Square Enix's Go series with uh, a dashing of the visual style of Monument Valley, which is one of my favorite iOS games, uh, all taking place on varying um, versions of a Rubik's Cube. So if you think about um, the mechanics of... uh, We'll just stick with Hitman Go. Uh, You're on a a kind of grid-based platform, and you can tap the screen or move like one grid at a time with the idea of uh, taking your uh, opponents out by kind of coming around them from the side, kind of like a sort of a chessboard with uh, a, a goal to, to reach at the end. Uh, this takes that, but it adds the Z-axis, essentially. Right. Um, you now can move around on this 3D uh, platform, Um you can't move from, say, uh, one face of a Rubik's Cube onto the other side of the Rubik's Cube. But what you can do is if you have uh, this platform that's split into three different uh, rows and columns, as you have on a Rubik's Cube, you can actually swipe one of those rows or one of those columns around. So if you are in the middle of one face of the side of this cube, you can move yourself around to the next face of this cube by moving that row around. Uh, and that is how... Um, movement works essentially you can move yourself on a face on the grid within say those nine spaces but you have to move flip the whole cube around or that layer that row or that cube uh, sorry that column uh, to get to the next side if there is uh, an enemy on that side that you need to take out and so you need to take out all the enemies uh, on that level um, before the end goal, which is signified by a red circle that will start to glow once you've taken everyone out uh, mm-hmm. to move on to the, the, the next level. And so, as with the Go series, um, it is this is by a single developer, by the way. This is nothing to do with Square Enix. Uh, this is by a guy called Myro Straka, who uh, has a degree in uh, architecture, and it clearly shows with this game. Um so the levels uh, expand and um, you can have a look online and see kind of some of the environments you have to work around, uh, kind of different obstacles get in the way. So like the, the, the theory of a Rubik's Cube is greatly expanded upon. Uh, enemies can start moving and they will start kind of tracking you down. They will start Good, to have... That's exactly what I was thinking was Rubik's Cubes aren't complicated enough. Yeah, I know, right? Well, you don't have to try and match up colors or in a row or whatever. And it's really good. Like um, I, as I said, I adore Monument Valley. It's easily one of my favorite games on iOS. This takes that visual tone and palette um, and adds a, a, a different kind of puzzle element uh, on top of the Go series with you know a Rubik's cube. And I think it's great. I think it's um, you know it's one of those games that just feels right at home on on touchscreen devices. Um, it's not uh, particularly demanding or powerful, so most kind of devices should play it. Uh, it's only a couple of quid, which is good as well. And uh, there's 40 levels, um, and so it should, you know, you look at about three to four hours if you're uh, if you're being smart with it. Um, 
It's a game that you can't really brute force your way through. Like, you have some puzzle games where you see the puzzle in front of you and you just need to do it. Um, but the effort is in just getting on with doing it. But here, you, you kind of have to think a little bit more laterally about how you get from one enemy to another. Um, as you move yourself around onto a cube, like, you, it, you don't just kind of swipe it and it just automatically clicks the the row or column into place you can gently slide it around so you can see where you're going to end up and if you're going to be in the firing line of an enemy so you can keep that in mind and kind of preview and see where's the best place you to end up which makes it a little bit more slower paced but it uh, makes it more tactical and uh, yeah it's it's really really good uh, i would definitely definitely recommend okay cool uh let's move on to the news news on the mark In the news this week, Mark, the worst kept secret in video games, Destiny 2 officially confirmed. Um, they're taking a second bite at this for the amount that got uh, invested. It was nearly $500 million invested in the first Destiny. Ten-year project that was, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Now, in fairness, it does have a massive user base still. It does. Um, people really, once they kind of, because that game was very hollow when it came out, there's nothing really to do, and there was some terrible voice dialogue in it, and all sorts of things. But when they got in and fixed the stuff that was wrong with what was there, and they actually started adding things like uh, the the Taken King and Vault of Glass raid and things like that, by the end, people kind of came around on Destiny. A lot of people liked it. Like I remember playing it quite briefly. Uh, I had it for a bit a week when it was still there was nothing there to do, and I got bored of it and got rid of it. But um. I remember thinking to myself, like, mechanically, it's a really good shooter. Like, it it feels I great. Mean, it is bungee, you know. Yeah. It is their bread it feels, and butter. It kind of reminds me of, you know, the, although there was more in it, it kind of reminds me of The Division. Mm. That, like, I got The Division, and I really like The Division. How it feels, um, the kind of, the, the how it looks, how it sounds. Uh, I just wish there was a bit more to the single player in it than sure. there is. Um, that, that's kind of what Destiny was except Destiny then went back and added a substantial amount of things to it um, so it, it's no great surprise that Destiny 2 was coming we've known about this I'd say for the guts of a year that Destiny 2 was on the way um, The it kind of leaked last week online and um, it was confirmed on uh, Twitter uh, that the, uh, the, the leak was real, Destiny was real, and the, the, the date that was on the leak, this is the only part that hasn't been confirmed, is that it's going to be released September 8th, which to me would make a lot of sense, because that gets the jump on Call of Duty, that they're not going to make the same mistake this year, and release a bunch of shooters within a week and a half, and cannibalize each other. Yeah. Um, so September, that feels to me like a good time, because I think... Apart from the traditional annual releases, I think Q3 is a little bit quiet this year. Uh, I think well, the, I mean, we've top-loaded, like, or front-ended, yeah. front-loaded, sorry, uh, the start of this year. Yeah. It's been like crazy. Breath of the Wild, Resident Evil 7, uh, Horizon Zero Dawn. Yakuza. Yakuza Zero. Those are just the big ones. Like, you can then break it down into smaller games, and it's been like... We've got Ukulele coming soon. Oh, man. <laughs> I think the only big, the only huge Q3 release I have circled in the diary is Shadow of Mordor. Yeah, yeah, or Shadow of War, should I say? Shadows and something. I don't yeah, know. sure. Uh, that that's pretty much the only one. And then whenever they feel like releasing that South Park game, 
Yeah. Which I've, could be any time. I've heard some news that uh, some outlets are cancelling pre-orders, but this is a thing that does happen when a game yeah. gets delayed. I'll even like, because I have it paid off, because I wanted to get the original one, port because you got a free port sure. of yeah. the, the first one. Uh, so I'll I'll keep up to date because if they cancel your pre-order on the store and refund you, you get an email from Sony about it. Mm. So I'll I'll let you know if that happens. Well, I think that was um from like actual outlets like Game. And, well, and they the did like, it with so. Hitman. Uh, PS uh, Sony cancelled all the pre-orders. Oh, did they? With Hitman? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Interesting. When it, when it moved to the um the the episodic thing they they cancel all the pre-orders straight away instead right. of taking because it was still the same price to buy the whole thing but because there was even a slight change to it they canceled all sure. the pre-orders which is the right thing yeah. to do um thoughts on destiny 2 before we move on i have none uh, um, did you play destiny no. the first one no. yeah i the thing is uh, uh, i um i didn't mind halo but i wasn't the biggest halo fan um and yeah, I, I like halo i'm not super into it and, and nothing about the concept of destiny appeals to me um, a big yeah. online shooter. Uh, just, no. I I really hope you know because you always want to see people do well. Um, I hope for Bungie that this is to de- like Destiny Two is to Destiny One what Titanfall Two was Titanfall One. Sure. That come up second chance at the in the batter's cage and you knock it out of the park. Well, I mean to be fair, I I I would say Destiny was a success to a degree. I don't know if it was to what Bungie and Activision wanted it to be. Mm. Uh, you know their grand scheme of this ten year IP. Um, I think they might have been a little bit well, too ambitious. Yes, especially because if it comes out on September eighth, that would be three years after the first one. Yeah. So in that, in in that those regards, it's yeah. it's a failure. Yeah, and what worries me about that as well is like the one drawback I have that's kind of ticking Destiny players off a bit is that you can't transfer anything. They've confirmed that yep. you can't transfer anything to the sequel, so it would still sort of half fit inside the 10 year idea hmm. if you could port everything over to destiny 2 and just keep going but you you, you can't seemingly although they, they've they released the final update for destiny 1 this week and i did laugh because they put back in peter dinklage's voice over with the worst line in the history of video games do you remember what the line was no that wizard came from the moon <laughs> An actual line in that game. Um, Great. They had to. They had to. Rem- they, I think they full on. Yeah, they full on removed Peter Dinklage from it, didn't they? And uh, Nolan North re-recorded all the uh, lines. I remember something like that. Yeah. I know. It's Move- not a game I, I keep up to date with. Yeah. Moving on. Speaking of Activision. Mm. Uh, Call of Duty. Uh, another leak. This is the, everywhere is leaking this this last week or so. Uh, it looks like Call of Duty are um, not taking a note from from Battlefield because Battlefield One was obviously uh, announced after development would have started on this game. But it, similarly, I, I think everybody had re- realized that going into the future had re- reached critical mass in these shooters a couple of years ago. Um, once so, you, once you've headed into space, mm-hmm. you're pretty much so. Sledgehammer are up for uh, this year because they have the the three studio development uh, rotation, and it's a uh, Sledgehammer's turn this year. And it looks very much like uh, it hasn't been officially confirmed, but a bunch of sources have independently confirmed to Eurogamer and a bunch of other outlets that this year's Call of Duty will be Call of Duty World War Two. What I like about this is that. Uh... 
Activision Suits recently reassured investors that C- uh, COD would head back to its roots. Now, if it is, you know, officially confirmed that it is World War Two, this is the third time that they have headed back to their roots. Well, what they said about their roots was, like, they clarified that statement about their roots was that it was boots-on-the-ground combat. Mm-hmm. That it wasn't going to be, like, orbital strikes and space and shit like that. Sure. But it meant it's going to be guns on the ground proper kind of like mm. not, basically a game that feels like modern warfare yeah. even if it isn't um, modern warfare. i played world at war uh the last yeah. time they ventured into world war 2 and mm-hmm. yeah it was okay yeah i liked medal of honor games back in the day so yeah, world war 2 yeah. is an aesthetic that sure. i get bored with and it's been a while i think really the only major game that has done world war 2 in the last little while is wolfenstein and that doesn't really do world war it <laughs> does but it doesn't <laughs> yeah yeah it's kind of grading on a curve that does a very highfalutin mecha hitler sort of way sure. of uh, doing world war 2 but um, i mean that might have happened you know yeah who knows, who knows? I, I wasn't there were exactly you? if sometimes if, it feels like i'm that old you know what if people can uh, try and claim that the Holocaust never happened. We can say that World War that II Mecca happened Hitler, in a completely Mecca Hitler exactly. definitely happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, Call of Duty World War Two. It's definitely it, it piqued my interest a little. Um, uh, as in, it would be uh, a strong consideration for when it heavily drops off in January sales because it's a campaign that I would be interested in playing. Yes. I still would. You could not pay me any sum of money to hop on multiplayer online on a Call of Duty game. No, I mean, part of me um, has no desire to ever give any kind of money to that campaign for the... Uh, to, to that franchise for the 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 gross mishandling around the reboot or the remaster of Modern Warfare. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, like, for that reason alone, I just, I don't want to go anywhere near mm-hmm. that property. Yeah, this will be when it's heavily discounted, I would consider it. It's not, they're not getting a pre-order, they're not getting a day one. Maybe, but the, the simple thing is, like, I haven't come away from uh, a Call of Duty game feeling satisfied, satisfied. with its campaign since... The original Modern Warfare, yeah. and like the, the the gameplay of those games, I feel uh, is still stuck. And I mean, the last one I played would have been Black Ops Three, and the gameplay still felt stuck in. Okay, you clear out a room, and then you have to move forward before the AI decides to come with you. Mm-hmm. And it was just that with a series of um, increasingly more uh, colorful animations and set pieces. Um, that for me is the key thing that Activision and Sledgehammer needs to to work on is doing something different with the gameplay. From what you've told me about the way that Battlefield One feels and how that is, um, you know, I think Sledgehammer needs to take a, a real close look at that and really kind of go back to getting that authentic feel of World War Two, if that's the route that they go down. Um, so that's the kind of key thing I, I think they need to, to really that the kind of grittiness um, because you know space bang shooter shooter is is not the most difficult thing to do these days. Yeah. Um, but to get that kind of all set, that sense of authenticity and realism uh, within on war um, again, as you mentioned about, about Battlefield One, like that that is more difficult to do. Um, and to do it in a way that is sensitive, well, you know, it's sensitive and a yeah. way to do it that is yeah. respectful. Thematically and narratively, it's very difficult to do that. But I would say that World War Two is very difficult, not because, not just because of the horrors that were committed during World War Two, but World War Two is difficult to pull off in a serious game nowadays 
because it was a period of warfare that was completely burnt out about 10 years ago because every fucking shooter was a World War II shooter. That as well. That like it is it's a well that hasn't been plumbed in a while except for its ridiculous ones like Wolfenstein and sure. some other stuff, but like people who have only picked up games in the last 5 or 6 years don't understand that it was just if you were getting a shooter it was like dollars to donuts it was probably going to be a world war Two shooter and you're just gonna to have to be fine with that um because it, it, you know uh there's a great line uh from oh god uh philomena kunk in one of the uh in one of the the charlie brooker specials has a great line about uh how world war Two was uh or she calls it war two she calls World War Two War Two, and she says War Two because it's better than War One and has a better bad guy. <laughs> like it, it yeah. from a narrative standpoint, World War Two is arguably the easiest war to uh, write a game about because there's a very obvious good guy bad guy dynamic going mm-hmm. on. It's not the shades of grey that war often is. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it, it will be interesting to see if they can come back to World War Two and do something uh, original with sure. it, sure. with very well trodden ground. Um, hopefully this is this next story this is the last time we have to mention this guy on the podcast but uh, John Tron uh, who has landed himself in a spot of bother for being a big mad racist uh, the last few weeks we already talked about that story so I won't labour on it too much but he was set to be a uh, have a cameo role in upcoming platonic game Ukulele which we are very much looking forward to here at Link to the Cast and uh, Platonic Games have announced that he his role is being completely dropped. Yeah. He's being replaced in the game by it, somebody else. It'll be a day one patch. Yeah, proper order. Yep. That's, uh, um, he I, should not, like, something so happy and playful and uh, kind of, like, I know I'm really excited for it, but it is for kids as well, yeah. you know? like uh, I'm, I'm really happy about this because I know that John Tron is a massive fan of Banjo-Kazooie. So yeah. this makes me, uh, this makes me ecstatic to hear. Um, there were some incredible tweets going around about how uh, this was a violation of the First Amendment, and that uh, John Tron should sue Playtronics. Um, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, but the First Amendment also allows people the right to say we don't want racists in our video games. Yeah, so yeah, it cuts both ways. I really. mean, it's not in there. Like you have yeah. to look really into you the. You can shout in your little racist corner. That's fine. But we're gonna have games that don't have racism in them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's it's part of the course these days that when something like this happens, that there is that backlash from a certain part of the community that are just a bit dense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, great, awesome, well done, Platonics. Uh, next up, there's a bit of a palaver going on over at YouTube, my friend. Um, so, uh, a bunch of stories came out over the last week that. Um, there was a process starting where a bunch of advertisers, big money advertisers, the likes of a McDonald's, etc., were starting to pull their sponsorship money from YouTube, which is um, crucial to YouTube survival, that sponsorship money, because uh, a lot of their big brands on YouTube, a lot of the... the, the the, the creators, the content makers on there will make some, some but not all of their income off the, the advertising money that comes in. So losing the big advertisers is definitely a worry. Um, so a bunch of, yeah, 
uh, a bunch of news stories came out in the last week that some of these advertisers were pulling out and um as the case was when people actually started digging under the surface a little bit this is actually a process that's been going on for a couple of months now is that advertisers have slowly uh but surely dro- been dropping off and I, th- I think the reason this came into the, the kind of the people started to take notice of this in the last week is that a bunch of them all dropped out at once yeah. last week yeah um and the reason they're doing it is because they are noticing that their ads are still appearing alongside videos that they would prefer not to be specifically in the case of uh, hate speech and things like that um the problem with this is youtube have tried as well to start um flagging videos as non-advertiser friendly so that those then that those sponsorship things don't appear at the start of the video and the people don't get the income from that but the problem with that is over the last week or so they've had um massive problems with that because first they were accidentally gating well i say accidentally um because i don't know what like it's people having manually to do it because there's no algorithm that can tell you the actual complete content of every video apart from what it's tagged as um so they were gating off uh all lgbt friendly videos as non-advertiser friendly so lumping them in with the hate speech wasn't ideal not the best best thing to do but even still like the problem here is the the definition youtube have of non-advertiser friendly is fairly nebulous and is something that can be attributed to pretty much anything that in the personal taste of the person clicking to decide whether these videos are on or off the list um because it isn't um a set list of things necessarily um it's things are getting thrown off that that necessarily shouldn't be the, the case in point is i i watched a, a, a big discussion about this over on philip defranco's channel uh he he kind of keeps people up to date on the the, the news that's going on behind the scenes at youtube he keeps a, an eye on it which wouldn't be surising they because... fucked him on a couple of things uh, yeah, in the yeah. past kind of like this <laughs> and he went if you go into because there is in your settings on your youtube app there is a a, a filter where you can get rid of all the videos that are not advertiser friendly mm-hmm. um and that's how people were finding out about the lgbt videos that people had it in the the censored mode and none of the lgbt friendly videos were showing up yeah uh, <laughs> he if you put it in that mode his video cha- his channel is empty uh, and he's also been noticing since the advertisers started dropping off that he's looked at his thing and um he got within the last week i think this video came out on monday within the week before that 10 of his 10 additional videos on top of the ones that already had were flagged as non-advertiser friendly now uh philip defranco is uh, a man who will have healthy debate um and i think it's fair to say that but is by no he, means a hate speech advocate yeah like, is bigot a bigot or racist yeah. or sexist or any of these things yeah uh yeah um th- this is this is the problem with with youtube and the the era that we're in um mm-hmm. He's such is a grey area. Yeah, news shows like his are the ones that are particularly vulnerable to this whole kind of um, selectiveness of what is advertiser friendly or not. Because when you talk about the news, you have to talk about uncomfortable things. Exactly. And he's a guy, him, um, there are other channels that have like lean certain ways. But Phil DeFranco, one thing I admire about him is for better or worse, he always tries to stay completely down the middle, hmm. give you both sides of an yeah. argument. And obviously by doing that, that kind of puts him in line of fire from both the left and the right. Uh, so there'll be one thing he says per week that's 
bound to enrage conservatives and one people one thing he says all week that's bound to piss off the 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 left well i I don't think he's as bad as um your man boogie four five two no but he doesn't like he's one of these people that um from the the content i've seen like he will claim objectivity but not necessarily be objective no he is very much subjective yeah but boogie is trying to be everyone's friend Mm. and in the process managed to uh put on the same level bigotry and uh feminism which Mm -hmm. was (laughs) yeah what um uh sorry because he's definitely uh, like he's a he's a complicated figure on youtube as well because he's also been an advocate for some uh like important discussion topics as well um particularly kind of uh domestic abuse and things like that he came from a like a really bad background where like his mother psychologically and physically destroyed him mm. over many many years and gave him a lot of psychological issues so he's been an advocate for mental health and things like that which is really good but then like there's you know there's that and then on the other side you've got this yeah like it's, his, like it's tough here's the key thing so youtube cannot physically have a a, a an office full of people just going click click with the sheer amount of content that's on youtube that's just not a viable option so yeah. they have to find a way to create an algorithm that can search all this yeah. now i do not want to be the person that has that task well the interesting postscript about this is that youtube have actually come out and they've and it's it, rather it's been noted that it's a rather unusual step for them because normally they will come up with some sort of corporate speak going oh we're you know, this policy has already existed, blah, 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 blah. You know, we're always open to suggestions, stuff like that. They basically came out and went, nah, we fucked it. Yeah. <laughs> they, came out, they came out and said, no, this was completely our mistake. We realized that stuff got flagged, shouldn't have been. And we are really properly dedicating now, uh, like, I don't know whether it's, you know, men, resources, whatever, to figuring this out in a better yeah, way. Look, here's the thing. You can throw a bunch of ammunition at YouTube for a number of things uh, over the last couple of years when it comes to copyrighted content and, and everything of that nature. But this is not an easy thing to tackle, mm-hmm. to um, either remove or, uh, or make sure that uh, any offensive material of this nature, excuse me, um, is not put alongside alongside uh advertised material um and you know I, and hey like sponsors mcdonald's starbucks whatever yeah they are brands they're gonna just take their their sponsorship deals elsewhere that goes without saying and as you said youtube are heavily reliant and youtube content providers are heavily reliant on that money but the simple thing is, this just this is not an easy thing to to sort out within nope, five and minutes. As you said, an unenviable task to figure out. Exactly. So YouTube, they had to come out and say, <clears throat> "Yeah, we fucked it," because mm-hmm. there's no other way you can spin it. Um, and like I can give credit to, to YouTube saying, "Hey, a, we fucked it, and b, <laughs> this is not a five minute job," you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is going to be a problem for a while, you know, as that website grows and as um people who create offensive material have their material on youtube and how to flag that correctly uh you know i don't know what the answer is um moving on mark are you ready for the digital future because it is coming possibly faster than you think um it appears that the the convenience at which most people are now able to purchase games uh conveniently uh and in some cases cheaply 
uh, digitally is starting to really show its effect on the brick and mortar video game retailer. Um, news from the UK and the US this week have real distressing and foreboding signs for uh, video game retail. Uh, game in the UK, uh, a chain that has had its problems in recent years, it, it had to uh, completely liquidate its assets in Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, actually, no, not Northern Ireland. They reopened in Northern Ireland. But in the Republic of Ireland, they completely liquidated all their assets to keep the UK afloat. Mm-hmm. Um, they marked, uh, they noted that they had a 27% fall in profits in, uh, at the end of last year. And that is, that is really, really tough to come back from. And this is, or well, to kind of deal with in the moment, not saying that it's necessarily completely done for, for them yet. But, uh, this is also paired with the news from the U S uh, this coming from NASDAQ. That's how serious this news is. That uh, GameStop is set to close 150 stores um, owing to kind of the, the move towards the digital future. Um, the Texas-based company reported in its for- fourth quarter and fiscal 2016 earnings on Thursday. GameStop reported a positive earning surprise for the fifth straight quarter. However, it also missed sales estimates for the third consecutive quarter. The company posted adjusted earnings of $2.38 per share, beating the Zach consensus estimate of $2.29 per share. Revenues of $3.05 billion fell short of the consensus estimate of $3.12 billion. Uh, for the complete report on GameStop's Q4 earnings report, you can check out Zach's article um, on the site. Um, their stock when this was announced tanked by 16% and closed the day with a $20.70 share after it was announced that it plans to shutter at least that's at least 150 stores and expand its non-gaming businesses and earnings yeah I mean we've had a number of discussions about brick and mortar game stores mm-hmm. uh, a number of times um that have usually revolved around something of this nature where uh game or gamestop um report a loss of earnings yeah. and it's it's a number of factors certainly uh the the digital age we are in it does mm-hmm. play a, a factor in that but it's also a number of things it is the like the tactics they've used to cling on to life have uh rubbed customers the wrong way and run them off yep uh, there is uh, simply the, the price of new games is uh, is is pretty excessive. Yeah, uh, it, still it used to well in terms of real money income, um, that the purchasing power of money games have never actually been cheaper. In terms of what a euro or a dollar or a pound is worth now, games have never been cheaper. Uh, but if you, I don't know, it, it, I, just I, for inflation, if, everything like yeah. games. Even though the numeric value was much lower when we were growing up, the actual cost of them was much higher than they are now. When I see a, a new game in uh, in game for and using pounds for fifty five pounds, when yeah. I used to be able to buy them for forty pounds, yeah. like I can't help but just look at it and say, no, nope. yeah, yeah, yeah. like in your head you might think that, but the, the the thing with the number that is particularly sticky is that um, one of the things that held up the brick and mortar stores for a while there was when the the, the kind of the, the nascent days of XBLA and the PSN. Um, it was generally agreed upon that games would be sold for the same price in both physical and digital locations. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we're seeing now over the past year or so, maybe two years at a push, is a slight separation in that. that a games... slight separation. Well, no, the thing <laughs> is that generally speaking, uh, 
video game retailers that are on the ball, uh, generally GameStop will do this, that if a price drops on the store permanently, not if it's on a flash sale, but if a price drops permanently on a digital store, within a couple of days, it will have dropped in the physical store as well. But that isn't happening as much now. No. And it's probably because, like, the, the profit margins on uh, for uh, GameStop in selling new games at retail is minimal. Mm-hmm. Um, they make their bones it's from used, used games, games, from the game protection they put on, and from the, the merch they sell. Yeah. Um, so what the digital stores are doing now is they're dropping to a price where it's eating too much into the profit margin that they can't follow it. Case in point... This week I said I picked up Yakuza 0. Now I picked it up physically because I had that GameStop voucher I found. That's the only reason I picked it up now because otherwise I would have waited a few months until there was a sale. Um, it was sixty four ninety nine retail um, in to buy physically. And I believe it's either 59 or 54 99 digitally. Mm. Which is like 5 or 10 euro, which isn't... You know, it's not a massive discount, but it's still a noticeable. It's a, it's a noticeable difference. Um, I think the other thing as well. That the, there's two other factors. One is the um, is the likes of the supermarkets that, and and I imagine WalMarts for America that are able to have these games at a slightly lower price. And this goes for uh, games, films, albums, books, everything. Um, they can afford to have these. Uh, products at a slightly lower price because they can get people in and hope that they'll pick up two or three other items. It's I worked in retail. That was always the the selling yeah, tactic the, with the, this kind of thing. The thing that's keeping the um, the the video game retailers, the specific video game retailers, uh, on well, the two things that are keeping them on life support at the moment are one um, a combination of convenience and loyalty is that I don't know if I walk into a Tesco that I'm going to be able to pick up Game X or that the people working there would have brand knowledge that I could, if I had a question, I I don't generally because I'm well up on this sort of stuff. But if I was going by, like if I was a parent going buying the new gadget for my child, I would think I have a much better chance of the people in GameStop understanding what I think the child is looking for than the people in Tesco. So there is a certain amount of loyalty there. To a degree, um, yep. And and even yet, like walking in, if I'm looking for Yakuza 0, I am not in my wildest dreams thinking that Yakuza 0 is going to show up in a random Tesco, but I will know that either they will have it in GameStop or that they will be able to order it within a couple of seconds for I, me. I think that it depends on the size of the Tesco or Sainsbury's or whatever in mind because the one the Sainsbury's I used to work in was relatively big and so we had a, a kind of pretty large collection of games well so that that's entirely down to the size of the store well that said at. the largest Tesco in the Republic of Ireland is in Nays and they have fuck all yeah well I <laughs> again now having worked at Tesco head office that yeah. doesn't necessarily surprise yeah. me because uh, we, uh, the, the the nearest Tesco to me back home is the biggest yeah. one in the country and had fucking everything. Yeah. Uh, but with that said, their core focus is, is going to be on the big games each year, your FIFAs, your Call of Duties, whatever. Yeah. Um, the the other thing that uh, keeps them on life support is this thing, and the retail does help with this somewhat, and so does Amazon, but it's the idea that if uh, the, the platform holders, if Sony, if Nintendo and Microsoft in the morning... Uh, found out a way to ensure that they would still manage the same console sales physically without those stores, then those stores would be done for. Yeah. Um, but it's just that there is no... You have to sell the consoles physically. Amazon 
people will buy consoles on Amazon, but with the shipping price and things like that for like a heavy package, that's not as ubiquitous. Um, and and again, uh, uh, stores, uh, supermarkets, they have their supply as well, but like the supply and demand is yeah, nowhere it's, near. It's a limited supply, a limited and supply. they don't have the, the like the infrastructure set up like a uh, like a video game retail shop would for the kind of pre-ordering consoles and things like that. Like oh, some, they do. No, some of them do have it, but it's not a thing where they're going to get a huge amount in and be able to fill out no. the demand. For no, it. no, like no, no. It's, it's not on the same level. It's a, it's a small kind of, because video games are just a small part of their business. It's entirely more for better or for worse. It's entirely more kind of, um, central to how GameStop is run. So it's a more kind of, um, how do you put it? A more kind of, um, industrialized mm. process um, i think as well and you mentioned it earlier the the these ideas of flash sales and mm. the a the frequency of what they happen and b the time scale the span between when a game is released and when it appears on a flash sale yeah. that time is diminishing Checking. you know yeah. another another thing it, it should be said before we move on another thing that they're that gaming retail shops will be thankful of is that the um the, the global spread of high-speed broadband is not as fast no. as Sony, Nintendo, or Microsoft would like it to yeah. be. Um, because there is still a, a huge number of people who either don't have... Uh, like, a surprising amount of people who wouldn't have an internet connection. And a huge number of people who would not have an internet connection or a broadband package suitable for downloading 50, 60 gig games on the regular. Um, so, so that definitely helps... Uh, stop the bleeding a little bit but uh yeah this is definitely one to watch because i think the next the next three or four years are going to be uh very interesting to see how these retailers pivot we've already seen with gamestop how they're basically half merch half video games nowadays in the uk and ireland yeah um and um i was in a few in america and they're kind of they're kind of the same but it's more it's more high-end, like, statuettes and things like that there. There's obviously the Funkos and things like that, uh, but it, it it's not uh, as much the kind of, for want of a term, cheap tat sure. uh, that you get in the, in the ones here necessarily. Anyway, moving on. Uh, some images have shown up from... Sorry there, like... So it's uh, yeah. jun- Junction, Junction Point. Point. Uh, uh, Cancelled Half-Life 2 episode reveal a snowy raven home. Tell us a bit about this being yeah, the so, Half-Life 2 enthusiast you are, my friend. Uh, so basically, uh, there was a plan to have uh, multiple episodes for Half-Life 2. We obviously got episode 1 and episode 2. Um, and, you know, Half-Life 2 episode 3 or just Half-Life 3 has been the, the question, you know, for a number of years now. Um we, yeah, Eurogamer have released, and this is probably everywhere else now, uh, a whole bunch of stuff um, from Junction Point, a studio founded by Warren Spector, who works on the like of likes of Deus Ex and System Shock, and uh, he was talking about um, some of the, the features that he was planning to have for this episode, um, a magnet gun, which, I mean, just sounds like Ooh. a different variation of a gravity gun. Um, but there's some pictures as well of, uh, yeah, basically what looks like a snowy raven home and uh, an eye frigging. As much as scary games are not my forte, raven home is fucking awesome because it's basically Half-Life meets Home Alone. Uh, and I, I'm all for more of that. And so it's just, it's more of a, a disappointment that, um, that whatever was the next planned installment of that series hasn't come to pass 
and uh, it doesn't seem like it's ever going to be because Valve are not in a position where they need to do it, you know? And I don't think they will ever need to do it again if um, unless... Unless they have whatever device that they need that needs to come out, like as long as as they slap Half Life Three as a as a as a release product, then you know that would make sense. But until then, it's just it's not going to happen. Uh, some uh, quick news bites to finish off things here. Uh, Telltale's Guardians of the Galaxy is going to start coming out on April eighteenth. Uh, the retail edition uh, of the series will launch the 5th of May or 2nd of May in North America. So that's going to start coming out. It's good timing because the film is out in May. Um, yeah, uh, not buying it <laughs> until the whole thing is out and someone can reliably tell me that the engine works. Yeah. Um, I would, if the engine worked, be very interested in this, especially because Nolan North is Rocket Raccoon. I am very <laughs> curious to see how this does sales wise after the the shambles that was the batman uh, game um i was like you slap marvel on something and people are buying it i think this is going to take in a lot of people who don't understand what's going on unfortunately you are probably correct i would not be surprised if in a couple of months from now we are reading on this show that it is the best-selling telltale franchise to date yeah would not be surprised by that uh moving on nintendo say that Super Mario Run sales did not meet expectations, um, which is probably a little bit dicey. Uh, it was their first uh, proper foray into the um, the mobile gaming, um, seeing as kind of uh, Pokemon Go was a whole separate thing. This is the first Nintendo-ass Nintendo iOS and Android game. Um, Fallen short of expectations, which is a little disappointing, but Nintendo have this history of setting ridiculously sky-high expectations for a lot of uh, things. Yeah, and they also haven't given any kind of numbers, which, you know, they're, they're not... One well, one thing they have steadfastly said is that they are going to keep with the pay-once model uh, to unlock the full game, and they're going to keep it at that price as well. See, now, here's the thing. Um, was... Was was Peter Wellington on when we were talking about Mary Run? I think it might have been. Um, and... I think we were in agreement in agreement that the the price of the game is not unreasonable, um, but at the same time, I could see the argument that if the game was four ninety nine or less, they because uh, I think it was like seventy eight million people played uh, Mario Mario Run on iOS and four and four million paid for it. Now, I do think that if the game had a couple of quid knocked off, and it sounds ridiculous, but that's the um, that's the price perception when it comes to handheld games. Yeah. You know, it's pretty much anything under four ninety nine. I feel is is kind of the cutoff point. People would buy it without even thinking about it if it was less than that. Exactly. Anything more, and it's a seriously considered purchase. Yeah, which is insane when you think about price of a cup of coffee. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Um, I do think that there, there is some merit to the idea that if the game had been less, that that number from four million would have risen exponentially. Uh, it's out on Android this week, so it'll be interesting to see how those numbers compare. Um, I think what might have helped them as well is if they'd had the game released simultaneously on Android as well, um, because I do think that some of the blowback from uh, reports and reviews for iOS will affect that for Android. Um, but hey, it's all a learning curve for them. You know, it's not the biggest issue. Nintendo are clearly um, doing fine with the the release of the Switch and whatever else, and the yeah. amount of money that Pokemon Go made. They're doing okay. They are doing okay. Um, but th- it's not yeah. something I thought I would have said a couple of years ago. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I was disappointed with Mario Run. Um, I, I think that was the general vibe a lot of people had. Yeah. 
um wears thin pretty quick pretty much like i liked that they took the concept of mario and instead of just making a, a port with virtual con- consoles which wouldn't have worked for mario they adapted it to fit for for touch gaming mm-hmm. but uh, yeah there's more they could do with it uh some stills have emerged from the new tomb raider movie um and two things should really um kind of assuage concerns that are going on there uh you know because the two existing tomb raider movies to for want of a better term are dreadful um this this new reboot stars alicia vikander uh, are you familiar with Alicia Vikander, my friend? Nope. Uh, she is the star of possibly the best sci-fi movie of the last number of years, Ex Machina. Uh, oh, which right. Okay. Very much check out. It's up there on the shelf. Yeah. Um, check that out. So she's a really, really good actress. Um, has a lot of buzz about her at the moment. So she is starring as Lara Croft. And the other thing that should assuage concerns, uh, because this is a franchise that does veer into the ridiculous sometimes, is that I think, Mark, you might agree with me that looking at these three images, the one that NME released and the two that GQ did, that this is very much following along the lines of the rebooted version of Tomb Raider as opposed to anything approaching the original version. Uh, it's not really the hottest of hot takes there, let's be fair. No, but that's um, definitely the way they should have gone with it. It shouldn't be campy action. Uh, no. I really like the turn they've taken with Lara Croft and the new games. There's a significant lack of Rimmer or Daniel Craig, and I think that's for the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does star, uh, as well as Alicia Vikander, it does star Walton Goggins from um, Justified and um, The Hateful Eight. And he's, he's very good, and he's the villain, so... Uh, that's going to be a cool scenery chewing performance, I mm. would expect. Um, uh, yeah, look forward to that coming out in hopefully the relatively near future. Finally, speaking of films, Jumanji. As a film Were you from a my Jumanji fan? I really liked the You're film. Damn and right, and the animated the series. The animated series. Yeah, yeah, buddy. That um, that and the Wild Thornberries back in the day. So, Jumanji is coming back, and um, I suppose. In some ways, thankfully, it's not a reboot because how the hell do you redo that Robin Williams performance as the the cast of the uh, the live action uh, remake of Aladdin are going to find out in the next couple of years? I imagine. Yeah, no, all right, Jesus. Um, but they are doing a sequel instead of a reboot. Yeah. Um, and it's being the actual. <laughs> I didn't realize that the full title of this film is Jumanji: Welcome to the Jungle. And it's funny because it starts The Rock, who was in a film called Welcome to the Jungle, which is not very good. No. Um, Was that his first non-Scorpion King film, wasn't it? I was just going to say, do you remember Sean William Scott? Yeah. Yeah. Christopher Walken was in that as well. So I was actually talking to Brian about this the other night. I was like, he was in two very similar looking, or sorry, two films relatively close together had very similar looking kind of promotional material. One was Walking Tall. And one was Welcome to the Jungle. I said, which one was the good one? <laughs> and he was like, which one did you think was the good one? I said, the one where he has the big stick. And he goes, that's Welcome oh, to... Walking well, Tall. Or Walking yeah. Tall, yeah, yeah. yeah. Walking Tall, the one where he just puts a fucking wampin on people. Uh, but yeah, so The Rock is in this. Kevin Hart is in this. Uh, they're kind of buddy-buddy of late because they were in Central Intelligence together. It also stars uh, Karen Gillan, she what of the Doctor Who. Uh, and Jack Black. And the, the storyline is, interestingly, that they are... Instead of... The, the reason I bring this up, uh, not only because Jumanji is a beloved childhood favourite, but because instead of being a board game, Jumanji is a video game in this sequel, which is odd. 
and uh, the idea is that they get ported into this video game and take on sort of when they get brought in they're, they're teenagers in the real world but when they get sucked into the game much like in the first one um, in, in this rather than being their teenage selves they take on adult avatars of kind of stereotypical video game characters so you can see that just looking at the images here uh, there was controversy over the, the outfit Karen Gillan was wearing there was yeah. a lot of stories about that as it turns out now from some of the, the the things that are being said about the film it's because it is a character that's basically lampooning the old style of Lara Croft yeah. which you can like looking at her gear there you can see that that is a deliberate very, Lara Croft sure. reminiscent um, and very much uh, if I I would bet if I go see that film and close my eyes when The Rock is talking it would basically be Nathan Drake just looking at him there um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, so yeah I'm I'm not I'm rushing not sure. out to see this one I'm not sure The Rock is even in we were talking about this last night myself and Brian when we were talking about those two movies um, The Rock is entertaining even in really really bad movies did you see he was in what was it uh, the sequel to Get Shorty Be uh, be cool i think he, he i was, saw that he was a gay guy with an afro i did not say that one no i need a weird suit yeah he's brilliant in that mm. he is also probably the best part of the horrible doom film that's uh, not that, saying a lot yeah yeah and the, only for two two parts and it's the the first person sequence which mm-hmm. is amazing and proper doom like and uh the, the bit where he finds the bfg and he's a bfg big fucking gun which is like campy and ridiculous so the rock is always entertaining um man he's jack, done some bad films ja- yeah yes uh jack black i like jack black in certain things and certain other things i really don't like him why the um, fuck was he in kong i love well, no, you hate that film why why is kong yeah i actually need i haven't talked about that movie on the show have i no i should talk should about that next, next week. week yeah um yeah jack black in certain things like my god uh like tenacious d i love tenacious yeah, d sure. school of rock amazing yeah. high fidelity yeah high fidelity is incredible i think it's fair to say that jack black works best when he's just being jack black the never-ending story part three where he's the school bully mm-hmm. <laughs> which people forget sometimes uh, yeah, Jack Black is great in some things, terrible in others. So, uh, and the same can be said for Kevin Hart, I suppose. Karen Gillan, uh, apart from uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, this is her big breakout role, um, probably. Uh, it's the one that's going to get her on the radar, where she actually looks like herself and not an alien. Yeah. Um, so, interested to see how that's going to go. Don't have massive high hopes for it, but uh, I'll be keeping an eye on it, nonetheless. Uh it is time, Mark, with the news now firmly behind us to move into the book club. And uh, it's your game this week. What are we talking about? We are looking at uh, a game that was released way back in... When the hell was it released? Uh, 2008. So, um, nine years ago. That's how time flies. God, I'm old. Sorry, before existential life crisis. <laughs> uh, yeah, we are looking at World of Goo. Thank you. 
World of Goo is a puzzle video game developed and published by independent game developer 2D Boy. The game was first released on Microsoft Windows and Wii platforms on October the 13th, 2008, with releases on Nintendo Switch, Mac OS X, Linux, and various mobile devices following in subsequent years. The game was nominated for the... Seamus McNally Grand Prize, Design Innovation Award, and Technical Excellence at the Independent Games Festival, and has gone on to win several other gaming awards since its release. So, World of Goo was originally released for the WiiWare, for the Nintendo Wii, and it took full advantage of what was the big selling point of the Nintendo Wii, if you weren't aware by now, which was... Um, kind of motion control that you didn't need to have the control in your hands and use the sticks you could have the control in your hands move your hand and the the pointer on the screen screen will will move along with you and world of goo was one of the first games i remember playing on WiiWare that a for a start it was around the time that we had the the kind of rise of uh xbla so we were seeing more of uh of these di smaller digital games kind of indie games um, that didn't cost 40, 50 quid, but still had, uh, you know, a lot of content in there and were doing interesting, innovative, original things. And so when everyone talks about um, the Wii and what is the kind of best game to show what the Wii can do, everyone thinks about Wii Sports. And that is still the, the definitive kind of game to go to when you mm -hmm. talk about you know what is the best way to show someone who's never played the Wii before doesn't know what it is what is the best game to to show them how the Wii works and how the controller works Wii Sports is still the one to go to but another game that people don't think about for showing how you can you know point at the screen and you can move around the screen um I think World of Goo is a really good game a really piece of software uh, for that purpose um, the game is built around the idea of creating large structures using uh, balls of goo. And uh, the game is divided into five chapters, each containing several levels. The game has a visual style that is very uh, Tim Burton-esque in its appearance. It's quite dark. Uh, the music sounds at points between... Somewhere between the Batman animated series and Dexter's Laboratory. <laughs> That's a that's a strange Venn diagram you've drawn for me there. Yeah, um, I I would definitely recommend um, taking some time to just Google World of Goo OST into to YouTube. Uh, but it fits; it does fit the vibe of the the overall tone of, of the game. Um, there's also a, a bonus meta game called World of Goo Corporation, where the objective is to build the highest tower using goo balls. It's kind of like a survival mode, if you will. Or think about. Um, uh, what was the uh, what was the game where you had to build semi-naked men on top of each other and they had to swing? Oh, mount cops? your friends. Hmm. Mount your friends. Mount your friends. Yeah. So it kind of has a similar vibe to that. But generally, the idea with uh, each level is you have a starting point and you have an end point, and you need to build these goos on top of each other uh, to build like a bridge uh, to get to the end point. Uh, and the idea is that you need to have uh, a certain amount of goo. Uh, that you fill into this container uh, to, to reach whatever the quota is to TN the level. So you can um, kind of go top heavy uh, to get all of this, to get this bridge across. But if you don't have enough goo to get into the container, you can't finish the level. So you have to think, you have to think kind of like about 
structural integrity um, to be able to finish the level. And I think that's... Uh, it. It's a puzzle game that... Um, it's not kind of obvious how to get from one end to the other. And every time you do a level, like the way that you build the structure of, of the goo does kind of change every time as right. you tinker around to find the right way to, to finish the level. Uh, it also, um, as with games of this nature, it has its core mechanic. And what it does is it expands on that with various uh, degrees of like environmental hazards. So... <clears throat> Uh, and, and different uh, terrains to try and uh, deal with. So, like, sometimes you'll just have, like, a flat terrain, a flat terrain to cross, uh, and sometimes you'll have to kind of make your way over, like, uh, an arch or something, like a climber trying to uh, kind of... Like, they're on a, 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 a kind of vertical surface, and then suddenly they have to kind of climb, like, backwards and up to then, to then climb over. And World of Goo does similar things like that as well. And that really kind of tests your knowledge of how much you've learned about how to create uh, these this architect, architectural structural devices with the goo. Uh, but so there are uh, things like uh, spikes and windmills and cliffs. Uh, and you can also be affected by uh, the wind as well, uh, which can be a bit of a pain. So uh, the player must uh, exploit combinations of these goo balls in order to complete each level. Um, extra goos recovered in the pipe are pumped through to the World of Goo Corporation, a sandbox area where the objective is to complete with other players worldwide by building the tallest power, uh, tower possible. Uh, the game, as said, is uh, split into four chapters, uh, and there's an epilogue. And so there's this whole backstory about the World of Goo Corporation as well, which is kind of silly and nonsensical, but it fits mm. within the, the kind of Tim Burton... Uh, the uh, internal vibe. logic of the universe. Yeah, exactly. Of, yeah. yeah. Uh, overall, there are uh, 48 levels, uh, and the game, you know, it's got a kind of, uh, you, you put a good few hours into it, I, I'll say that much. Um, sorry. So, from here on Wikipedia, uh, the story is told primarily through cutscenes and signs encountered throughout the game, which are left by an unseen character known as the Sign Painter. Uh, initially, pipes appear throughout the land, waking up many sleeping goobles who have gone undisturbed until this, as they are filled with a childlike sense of curiosity. And that's a thing to take into to note. Um, they did you uh, did you play Rayman Origins? A little bit. Yeah, you know the 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 lums, the little kind of golden fairy mm -hmm. uh, things. Yeah. They have a kind of similar charm and sound to them. Very very happy, very perky. Um. So basically, upon reaching a pipe entrance, the Goobles are sucked by this pipe system into the World of Goo Corporation main building, where they are processed into many products. For example, energy drinks. Uh, the excess Goobles are left outside the Corporation headquarters, where they together begin to build a giant tower. Um, and then the story kind of proceeds from there. Um, so you've never uh, touched this game at all. Mm. Um, but it is currently on the Switch. Uh, it's newly yeah, been for released on the Switch. Yeah, for Euro. Which is, I think, about the, the, the right price. Um, I feel that it's a game that definitely takes advantage of um, being able to use the Wii motion sensor. Um, I, I'm not sure how that would feel using controls, um, but it is on Windows and OS as well, So, which is you know good for using a, a mouse cursor. Uh, the game was developed by a 2D boy uh, based out of San Francisco. Um, they were former electronic arts employees. Um, the game was made essentially by three people. 
Uh, development lasted over two years, and it cost about ten thousand dollars, which is pretty good considering the 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 investment uh, versus reward. Uh, it kind of works out really well in their favor. Um, apparently, actual development was uh, carried out in coffee houses uh, using Wi-Fi. So you know, mm-hmm. one of those one of those kind of success stories success stories of uh, kind of lo-fi indie development um, that you saw. Uh, at that time with stuff like Fez and Super Meat Boy, you know, these very small teams um, that created something that kind of on a global basis, on a global scale, were very, very successful. There was plans for for a sequel uh, in November 2010. uh, Entry on their World of Goo blog, uh, Carl Gabler, one of the developers, stated that a second World of Goo was a possibility and something they would enjoy working on. Um, but since then, we haven't really heard anything, and that was seven years ago at this point. Um, and but we have seen that you know now they have made a, a released it onto to the Switch, so that gives me some hope that they might think about making a sequel. But at the same time, World of Goo in itself is such a kind of contained package that to take that concept and to just do it again uh, would be difficult, or to expand on it. Um, I'm not sure that uh, you could do that without kind of uh, bloating the kind of concept. Think like Hotline Miami 2. Yeah. You know, um, kind of an okay Outstaying game. Outstaying your welcome. Outstaying your welcome, yeah. yeah. Um, but reception-wise, uh, both the Wii and Windows versions of World of Guru received critical acclaim, holding an aggregate score of uh, 94 out of 100. That is the fourth best game for, on uh, the Wii from Metacritic. Mm. So the only games better than World of Goo on the Wii, uh, according to Metacritic, are Ma- Mario Galaxy 1 and 2 and uh, Twilight Princess. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good competition to be in. Now, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that, considering you have the likes of uh, Metroid. Um, but... Hey, uh, it it is a very very good game, yeah. and I think it is worthy of that score. Um, what about uh talking about like because it, it's on the Switch, it's on the Wii, it's th- those are consoles. Um, shall we say geared towards not exclusively, but certainly geared at least partially towards children. And this is a puzzle game. Puzzle games do get complex. Um, how does this play as a as a child friendly experience? Would, like obviously you are not a child is yeah. your best estimation i mean sometimes i think you know um no it it does and child and child yeah, yeah. different it does have a, a deceptiveness to it i will agree that um the the not so much a difficulty spike but the curve of the difficulty does increase dramatically throughout the game mm-hmm. uh, and certainly towards the end some of those levels um are a bit nightmarish um in their design but i think what world of goo is um is one of those games that if you're a parent i think it's a great game to introduce to your to your child certainly for the wii at the time because it's an easy enough setup for them to understand yeah of just point you wouldn't go straight into giving your kids the witness this might be something (laughs) (laughs) i mean you could i'm not sure that would be the best idea um but it's a very very simple uh design scheme uh, around how you use the controller that I think um, a kid could certainly grasp it very quickly um, and I think it's a good way you know because we talk about how um, 
games are a way for children to to learn certain uh, skills and kind of build uh, the neurons in their brain um, and kind of uh, work on their hand-eye coordination, etc., etc. And I, I think that World of Goo does have um, a degree of kind of teaching children about how kind of basic physics work and how um, if you don't build this structure the correct way out of goo that okay yeah it's gonna fall apart and it kind of teaches the kids about you know the correct way to do that so i I think that certainly yep as you get later on towards the game that smaller children might struggle with it but i think that the the kind of basic foundations of what the game is built on uh i I think that a kid could be introduced to it and um and be fine for for the most part, but you know, if you're a parent, you can easily be there with your child and say, "Hey, look, this is how you do this." Oh wait, no, I can't do this as well. Fuck, this is difficult. Hit me with your elevator pitch, my friend. Uh, World of Goo is one of the more I think underrated, even though it has such a good rating on Metacritic. But I think it's one of the more underrated games from the last generation. Uh, partially due to being on uh, the WiiWare, which wasn't the most celebrated part of the Wii. Um, and certainly, if you look between XBLA, XBLA and uh, WiiWare, um, people think more about XBLA with some of the releases on that. But I think that it has a really unique uh, style to it um, that I really appreciate. And I think that um, if you can't play it on the Wii because you don't have a Wii anymore, that this new release on Switch is definitely worth looking at, um, and it's definitely worth looking at on uh, Steam as well, um, because it's probably pretty cheap at this point. Uh, and just because uh, it still holds up really well, kind of visually and, and gameplay wise, like 10 years later. Um, it's also out on uh, mobile as well. So. Um, yeah, I, I think it's one of the games from the last generation that if I was to make, say, like a top 20 list, uh, I, I think it would feature in there. Excellent. Uh, one last bit of business to do on the podcast here before we wrap things up, Mark, and that is to announce what our game is going to be for the book club next week, episode 61. And uh, I'm going to take you back, Mark, to a magical day in history, a magical day in both our lives. And that day, my friend, was December 14th, 1996. Because mm-hmm. what we're going to play for next week is not only one of the great games in its genre that came out when we were growing up, but it is one of the great games, full stop, that came out when we were growing up, my friend. Because we are going to be playing on episode 61 a little game you might have heard of called Mario Kart 64. I'm aware of that one. Yeah, we're going to play that one next yeah. week. Um, so check out episode 61 Mario Kart 64 coming out next week that is gonna do it for episode 60 of Link to the Cast this podcast is available on SoundCloud on iTunes on uh, pretty much any podcast platform we do have the iTunes subscription link uh, in the uh, on the SoundCloud page I will also I've been meaning to add either the the SoundCloud uh, or not the SoundCloud, sorry, the iTunes link or the RSS link in our bio on Twitter, but I, I will do that soon. Um, so, yeah, iTunes, SoundCloud, any podcast provider, really. Just search for Link to the Cast. Give us a subscription, uh, a rating and review. It all helps us out. Get our search engine optimization banging up there. 
Um, the website is linked to cast.eu. That's where the, the show notes, etc. get posted. And sometimes there are pictures of Curtis Axel pointing at link to the cast sign in the distance. Um, it's the it, content you ask for. Yeah, exactly. That's the kind of top-notch professional Photoshop quality images that you want from Link to the Cast. If you want to get in touch with us uh, privately, you can email us at linktothecast at gmail.com and we will get back to you, both myself and Mark. Troll those emails and uh, you'll get a reply off one or the other of us. Social media, though, is probably the uh, the snappiest way to hear back from us. Uh, we are facebook.com forward slash linktothecast and at linktothecast on Twitter. Those are your best ways to keep up to date with all the content that we are producing content out the wazoo we have from Link to the Cast uh, I'm at Dave Ryan IV on the tweet machine and Mark is at Lithium Project on the tweet machine uh, find us talking about the graps all week long over there if you want to follow us uh, on this Wrestlemania week we stream video games Mark over at twitch.tv forward slash Link to the Cast and archive them later on YouTube if you just search for Link to the Cast either uh separate words or all as one word linked to the cast whatever way you choose to use your search functionality uh we have a weekly video schedule monday wednesday friday you're getting hot video content from us most weeks uh mark mark on mondays is the monday stream what's the what's the sitch uh, it's just a blank screen at the moment um i've i've kind of been like mad with other bits of pieces of work and projects at the moment yeah, so flat out over there yeah, a little bit. So, so Mark on Mondays has been on on the the more quieter side of things recently. Um, on top of that as well, I did I was planning on streaming Night in the Woods, but I didn't actually get around to buying it. So, um, in terms of content to actually put out at the moment, yeah, it's a bit quiet at the moment. You gotta do what I do. I like I do a lot of them. Download all the videos and just ha- just because just in case. I I need to have that pit block of time to do that. Um, so yeah, just a, a, a bit busy at the moment. So um, yeah, Wednesday is Retro Corner sixty four, our little series where we chronologically look at every single N sixty four game released in PAL regions. Uh, this week coming is going to be Wave. Well, actually, no. Up oh, by the time you listen to this, will yes. be Wave Race sixty four. Wave Race sixty four. Our second attempt at recording that, um, and uh, that's a that's a hell of a game, Mark, and and still holds up pretty well in 2017 i would agree uh, so check that out over on the youtube channel we'll be doing one of those every week there typically we tend to aim for about a half hour on those videos but sometimes uh the quality of the game and or emulation means we cut things a little bit short and take the piss out of it instead um friday the the last video of the week is friday of plays that's my weekly series at the moment i'm still playing through life is strange bleakness simulator that it is um that's a very fun show and i've got another one queued up to go up this friday uh this podcast obviously comes out every thursday it's the only thing we drop on a thursday so uh, you can enjoy that hour and a half to two hours of us babbling away in your ear holes anyway like i said that's going to do it for episode 60 of linked to the cast it's been a pleasure having you here thanks for joining us make sure you're all uh, subscribed up to our content to, to get everything in the subsequent weeks we appreciate any of the new listeners that have hopped on lately any of the old listeners that are still sticking around we love you all the same um so for mark robinson i'm dave ryan we shall see you next week goodbye <laughs>